Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. In the year 1609, English poet and priest John Donne lamented the state of disconnectedness and discontent that was infecting his inner and outer worlds. No man is an island entire of itself, he chided his hearers. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Though today's technological advances have made possible communication strategies far beyond the imagination of the 17th century mind, 21st century dwellers nonetheless often find ourselves in a state of virtual isolation. In the pre-COVID world, we may have come in contact with hundreds or thousands of people daily, but for many people, especially in America, there was a palpable sense of disconnect, a sense of isolation in the midst of a crowd. Master teacher and author Parker Palmer calls this a serious cultural ailment. Quote, human beings were made for relationships. Without a rich and nourishing network of connections, we wither and die. I'm not speaking metaphorically, he says. It's a clinical fact that people who lack relationships get sick more often and recover more slowly than people surrounded by family and friends. In fact, the true connectivity of our modern-day communities has been called into question by the communicative processes that have so radically transformed our culture. Maybe you remember the 1995 movie The Net. Angela Bennett was a freelance software analyst whose only connection with the outside world was through the internet. She found herself completely separated from human relationships, and in her time of greatest need, there was no one to vouch for her existence. No one in the real world knew her. The only identities she could call on were in the fluid connections of her online realm. Now, at the movie's inception, of course, the dawning of the internet age, few of us could have imagined the world this character lived in. Ordering dinner online, talking to strangers online, a world virtually devoid of face-to-face contact with anyone. In fact, when the movie debuted just over, what, a decade and a half ago, the idea of being completely unattached from society seemed an improbable Tinseltown trauma. But today, in many ways, that Hollywood fantasy has become an American reality. We've talked before about author Andy Stanley's observations that whether it's the gym, the mall, the grocery store, the coffee shop, Americans are increasingly, quote, together but alone. We've talked about George Gallup echoing this sentiment where he said, in the midst of increasingly overcrowded cities and frantic personal schedules, Americans are, quote, among the loneliest people in the world. Researchers have noted that even architecture has begun to reflect this resistance to community. Houses are now intentionally built, as Putnam puts it, to promote privacy and seclusion, not connection. The American front porch, which was once a zone for interacting with neighbors, has been replaced by walled fortresses of community eschewing garage doors. We pull into our driveways, cross the moat, and quickly shut the drawbridge behind us, locking out the world. Over the last 100 years, we've gone from a nation of 80% agricultural regions where we knew everyone in our city to a nation of 20% agriculture where we don't even know the person living next door. We traveled from place to place in our castle-like cars, a universe in themselves, complete with global tracking systems so we don't have to stop and ask someone for directions, and music so we don't have to talk to each other along the way. 
As if to replace these physical structures, of course, online communities exploded on the scene, a trend that's gained unprecedented momentum in the last couple of decades. The Pew Internet and American Life Project found that 84% of internet users go online with the singular goal of developing deeper social ties. Ironic when you think about it. A study that we talked about earlier, 2018 study on Gen Zs, found that 63% of their social time is spent in online interactions, not face-to-face conversations. What we once said in person, we now say and do in a virtual world. We are, quote, together but alone. The absence of face-to-face communication has etched its warped linguistic structure into the facet of every facet of modern life, plowing its way into the classroom, the living room, the boardroom, with progressively deleterious effects. A few years ago, I found myself standing before a humanities class where I had asked students not to parrot information, but to think for themselves. They were dumbfounded, literally unnerved. Do you mean paraphrase what you've, paraphrase what you've said? Put it in our own words? No, I said, I want you to analyze the content. Tell me what you think. Interpret for yourself. They stopped me in the hallways, rough drafts in hand. Is this what you mean? They emailed me. I don't understand the assignment. They turned in paper after paper that regurgitated the theme of the story, devoid of any personal analysis or insight. I'm not making this up. Without a script, many of my past students seemed to find it difficult to act, to think. Improvisation did not come naturally, and imaginative insight and analysis were decidedly problematic. Invariably, with one or two exceptions, each student in the class repeated, paraphrased, and summarized either the storyline or the class discussion. Original observations were seemingly extinct. Critical thinking is an educational buzzword and purported objective in nearly every academic circle in the United States. However, today's students often seem less creative and insightful and even less clear about their goals and direction, their purpose for school and life. This is one of the reasons I founded Chula Vista Christian University to create a group of students that break free of that generation of robots. We live in an increasingly complex society, one with multiple difficulties, things that are challenging for adults, let alone young adults, to conquer. Over the last 20 years, our social, emotional, familial, and physical worlds have undergone radical changes of every possible scope. As the, quote, internet generation came of age, boomers and Gen Xers awakened to an onslaught of pandemic post-modernity. Parents have to battle messages from junk food ads, overly sexualized media, violent video gaming, media centrality, increasingly unnerving peer behavior. In short, it's this maddening quest, this bewildering battle, a race to counter the culture. College educators who have been in the game for more than a decade have definitely witnessed these subtle but profound cultural shifts and their application to the life of a student. A few years back, Cornell psychologist Janice Whitlock published a study on the, quote, rampant self-mutilization at Ivy League schools, where she said that at the time, 17% of Cornell and Princeton students were purposefully cutting or burning themselves to relieve emotional pain. Now, when I would talk about this in conferences and I would tell parents the statistics, they would be shocked. I would ask them, raise your hand if you know someone who's cutting or burning themselves. They would look at me like I was insane. But when I would tell their students, their children, they would yawn. It was such a commonplace component of the culture. It was the norm. Almost everybody knew somebody who was cutting or burning. 
The Indiana University School of Medicine reported that 60% of the population over the age 15 carries, or 14, sorry, carries at least one sexually transmitted disease. I know we've talked about that sobering statistic before. But add to these stats the burgeoning rates of U.S. homicides, second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds, the tripling of obesity rates in teenagers, the rapidly escalating rate of consumer debt among college students, one in five carry over $10,000 in student debt, and the five-fold increase in antipsychotic prescription drug use, we have a recipe for socio-emotional de- disaster. The feel-good 70s have collided with the virtual 2000s, and as Dorothy once observed, we are not in Kansas anymore. The reason for these challenges is complex, of course, but a number of recent social overhauls have begun to present potentially negative ramifications for both the domestic and the educational sectors. First, we have changes in the workplace that continue to wreak havoc on the family structure. In her book, The Overworked American, Juliet Shore said that the typical American works the equivalent of 13 months a year. And in case you've forgotten, there are actually only 12, so do the math there. Over the last 30 years, men have seen a 98% increase in the number of hours worked per year. That went from 2,054 to 2,152. And women saw even a more dramatic shift. Theirs went from 1,406 hours to 1,711 years, a 305% increase. Family dinner time, which was once a very important opportunity for reflecting and connecting, has been radically altered in content and time and quality and location. Mealtime preparation has dropped from one hour to 30 minutes. Of course, we know many, many families uh, use more like the modern 10-minute meal um, or less, I guess. Furthermore, the speed and variety of modern mealtime options often equates to separate dinners, separate dining rooms, and even when families do take the time to eat together, listen to this, 63% of Americans say the television is on during mealtimes, which means that opportunity for meaningful connection is limited even further. Those are great studies from the Kaiser Family Foundation. You can check those out as well. As we saw earlier, the children who were most likely to avoid drug and alcohol abuse were those who had regular mealtimes with their families. But as we see from instant meals to instant messages, current trends are pulling at the family. The modern student, the modern Gen Z is facing a number of demanding and isolating predators. Many studies have underscored the importance of family connectivity, openness, disclosure. The Life Skills Training Center has found that, quote, self-disclosure reduces levels of rage, substance abuse, deviancy, divorce, and criminal behavior. People have a basic need for emotional closeness, one researcher said, and problems increase as persons move away from close, intimate, and trusting relationships. We are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. That's a level of self-disclosure, a personal intimacy. When a person is, is experiencing low levels of these emotionally intimate connections, the person becomes withdrawn shows decreasing levels of self-esteem, shows hostility or meanness, turns to self-destructive behavior. Sound familiar from our earlier stats? A lack of accountability relationships and those close personal friendships can lead to behavioral patterns that are not sufficient for mental health, let alone academic success. But the reverse is also true. Close personal relationships are proven to yield health benefits. Documented benefits range from lower blood pressure, greater feelings of gratification and ability to cope with stress, stronger feelings of certainty, to even greater longevity. 
Research has shown that even under extreme financial duress, people with strong relationships maintain a stronger level of happiness. Intimacy is one of psychology's optimum lifestyle factors, as one researcher puts it. Additionally, healthy relational ties lower a number of risk factors. The University of Minnesota's Minnesota Multiphase Personality Inventory, the MMPI, found healthy socialization to be the number one, quote, moderating influence in the whole realm of mental illness problems, reducing both risk and severity in nine different forms of mental illness. Author Sidney Girard, who is a former professor of psychology at the University of Miami, also presses the importance of emotional intimacy and closeness. Quote, being heard and touched by another who cares seems to reinforce identity, mobilize spirit, and promote self-healing, he said. Accountability and openness work together as physiological benefits as well. For example, several studies have documented the success of positive behavior training like weight loss when people committed to their goals together. One researcher who's a chief scientist at Weight Watchers International said, quote, friends who diet together have a greater success rate than those who diet alone. They're more effective at staying motivated and beating obstacles. Clearly, these close interpersonal relationships play a significant role in both our emotional and our physiological health. Central to the replication of positive behavior is a type of influence surrounding the individual. That's an important word we've been talking about the last few episodes. Legacy culture shaper Albert Bandura, professor of psychology at Stanford University, addressed these concerns in a number of very seminal studies. Social learning theory, one of my favorites, was uh, where he demonstrated that our view of the world, our interactions, and ourselves is largely shaped by our socialization, that we mirror the company we keep. One such example of the importance of positive socialization in the development of pro-social behavior is a study published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol led by the researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The study links the connectivity and accountability found in faith-based communities to the greater likelihood of pro-social behaviors. Now, it's a it's a pervasive, a longitudinal study, and researchers found that voluntary accountability inherent in regular church attendance actually results in lower rates of alcoholism and depression. Researchers tracked participants' progress over a period of 30 years, and they found that the positive socialization was an important link to behavior, quote, collaboration with religious institutions may be helpful in developing research and interventions linking religion and health. Some really important studies there. Family-centric model of education embraced for thousands of years before the current era of media centralization remains the primary system of educational health. We're going to unpack these stats over the rest of this episode and the next one. But as one researcher put it, the evidence is now beyond dispute. The most accurate predictor of a student's achievement is not income, it is not social status, it is the extent to which the student's family is involved in the child's education. In fact, in the more than 30 years on research on parent involvement, researchers have consistently found that parent involvement produces positive results for children. 
In one study by the Manitoba Department of Education and Training, parents uh, found that parents are more significant than teachers or peers or any other influence in influencing educational aspirations for the majority of children, including improved academic performance, improved school behavior, greater academic motivation, and lower dropout rates. When we look behind the scenes at schools where programs were halted for increasing student performances, we almost always see a common factor, though it's not often commonly pointed out. Parents have been invited into the mix. In other words, it's not the social system that's improving grades. It's the inclusion of family in the process. A few years ago, the importance of parent involvement was designated as one of the national educational goals in the Goals Educate America Act. The U.S. Department of Education noted that, quote, research over the past 30 years has consistently shown that greater family involvement in children's learning is a critical link to achieving high quality education, end quote. What's most interesting about these findings is that the benefits are not confined to early childhood or even elementary school. A number of studies demonstrate that the importance of family ties in post-secondary education as well. And many parents, of course, seem completely unaware of the powerful role they play in the lives of their children. This is probably a result of the continued mockery of authority that's promulgated on entertainment media today, or maybe it's the result of a disconnect between one generation of parents and a former generation. But either way, many parents have been conditioned in this kind of expert-driven culture to believe that someone else can do a better job of inculcating values. But this is simply untrue from a statistical standpoint. When we look at the differences in retention rate for Christianity, in other words, when someone graduates from the school from school, will they still be a Christian? Will they retain the faith? And you've heard me say this before, the differences are shocking. 85% of students who grow up in Christian homes but attend public schools will walk away from the faith by the time they graduate. Only 15% are surviving right now with their faith intact. Why? Well, they're indoctrinated daily, constantly oppressed by peers. A student at a secular college was telling me the other day that he was trying to start a conservative club at his secular university, and this very small number of professors who were rumored to be conservative told him quite plainly that they would never put their name publicly to these conservative clubs because, quote, their offices would be burned down. What? Parents, these are the schools American Christians are sending their children to, K to college. The American public education system has become an indoctrination station. Next on the Christian retention rate is private schools, which are still abysmally low if parents are not involved in the discipleship practice. And sadly, that's the case for many Christian schools. Many private schools cater to a drop-off mentality where parents want to send their children in to be trained up, discipled by someone else, pay off someone else to mentor and disciple and train up their children. In his study of 200 Christian colleges and universities, Ken Ham wrote in his book Already Compromised that the vast majority of Christian institutions for higher education have defaulted to this godless education system that waters down the word, forsakes their essential mission as Christians, and really just looks the other way when it comes to authentic discipleship. The one bright spot for Christian education is the parent-directed model called homeschooling. Dr. Brian Ray has shown over and over that that homeschooling has a tremendous benefit socially, emotionally, academically, of course. 
Um, another study shows that less than 5% of homeschoolers walk away from the faith when they graduate. That is an incredible return on investment. Let's go back to that earlier number. 85% of public school students from Christian homes walk away from the faith. Less than 5% of homeschoolers. Come on. That's an ROI right there. That's a return on investment that's worth whatever it takes to educate our kids at home. These kids have been discipled by a parent. Their home is in order. In fact, Titus and Timothy have a great deal to say about leadership outside before there's leadership inside. What right does a leader have to govern a church? Titus asks if his own children don't obey him with proper respect. I know that's a hard word, but it's a litmus test. There's no escaping the fact that parents are the first line of defense for discipleship and our children are the first line of our life resume. The fruit of their lives is the tangible evidence of where we've invested our time, talent, and treasure. You know, a few years ago, parents in our district were up in arms because public schools in the county started cutting hours out of the school day due to budget cuts, adding a number of minimum days and furlough days to the calendar, which meant students wouldn't be in classes all day. What were they thinking, one mother said aloud in frustration. Who's going to watch these kids on all these half days? Instead of welcoming the extra time with their children and recognizing the vital role that she played as a parent, this parent was bemoaning the fact that her life was being inconvenienced for the sake of the child. Another example of that, what can we do with them mentality is found in the headlines at the start of summer break or those dreaded two long weeks of winter break where there's no school in session. And of course, with COVID, we're seeing we're seeing that mentality across the board. Headlines will give pseudo supports to parents who apparently have lost touch with the joy that's found in child rearing. Articles abound along the lines of how to keep your kids out of your hair during these torturous long weeks of vacation. This type of advice could only be possible in a culture where parental connectivity has been severed and most likely replaced with a prosthetic version of electronic parents and virtual friends. We saw a similar response when schools closed down from COVID. Fortunately, though, many parents saw the dark underbelly of the public school system when they looked on in horror at what children being taught via Zoom in their own living rooms, or their suspicions were rightfully aroused when public school teachers said they didn't want parents listening in on their classes. But many, many parents still failed to connect the high rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation to the atheistic Marxist teachings of their children's 40-hour-a-week indoctrination center, the public school classroom. And listen, friends, let me tell you, that includes charter schools. There are public schools as well. They fall under the same rule. They may have, quote, Christian teachers, but listen, do your homework, I implore you. We become like the company we keep, and there's no more capable person for discipling, training up your child than you, the one to whom God gave that incredible child. The foundations our children form in childhood and their teenage years will guide them in the way they think, the way they act, the way they interact, the way they work, the way they vote. What do we do from here? Well, in part two of this episode, we're going to talk more about some of the practical applications of parental involvement. As John Don noted, no man is an island entire of itself. We're all part of the continent, part of the main, and the influences we surround ourselves with will foster the beliefs and behaviors that ultimately determine the outcome of our lives. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. 
If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.